good evening and welcome. I'm John Drummond, your host for the next 60 exciting minutes. As always, we have a great show for you on the TNT show. Look, I said we have another great guest tonight, and I'm really excited that she's here with us. Tonight, the TNT show welcomes Sophie Johnson. Now, she's pictured behind me with her sister, Sarah, uh, who unfortunately can't join us, but she's a great excuse. She's in Australia. So hopefully she'll be watching us tonight. And if not, we've got this show on YouTube. Anybody can watch it anytime. Sarah is in this iconic post-referendum photograph behind me. And Sarah will be talking about the night that all happened and how she felt as a 16-year-old holding up the Saltar with a rather antagonistic crowd behind her, as you can see. Now to our guest tonight. The Nation talks to Sophie Johnson. How are you, Sophie? How are you coping with the pandemic? Hiya, John. Thanks very much for having me on the show. To be honest, apart from, you know, a few friends who become a little bit ill and, you know, just general worry about older relatives, I've come out of it pretty unscathed. Uh, I'm certainly lucky I'm not a first year uh, at university. I'm in third year myself. But I think I would have found it very trying being a first year in university halls in Glasgow, particularly. Murano uh, Student Village, for example, was put under heavy, heavy lockdown restrictions and uh, many didn't have access to laundry or food for, for several days, had to be reduced to washing uh, their clothes and the bath, etc. It was just an absolute nightmare and so unorganised. I mean, these sometimes 17-year-olds have come from a different city told that they were allowed they were going to have blended learning and then come to Glasgow and locked in <laughs> with no mental health support at all and purely because they were needed there for the profit of the universities. It was just a terrible, terrible outcome that could have been very much foreseen. What do you think should have been done? The thing is I think both the Scottish government and the university management had a had a proper idea that this was going to happen. You know, you lock loads of students in in the same place, especially if they're in first year. And during, you know, in the middle of a pandemic and you expect social distancing or you expect a second wave not to come, it's just entirely ludicrous. So what they really should have done is not advertise uh, student halls COVID safe student halls to people from around the world, brought them over and then locked them in. It's just, and you know, some of the measures were really, really horrible as well. I mean, we got an email out and um, so this was largely targeted at Hall students, but uh, told that if you broke any rules, you'd be expelled essentially. And it's just, it's the worst start to university experience ever. Just absolutely outrageous and then what even is worse is that because because it hit Glasgow first you'd think that for <laughs> elsewhere in the UK they might have seen it <laughs> and uh, and maybe listened and uh, all you know all the anger in these student halls and just kind of went hmm, maybe we shouldn't do the same thing yeah. Oh, so yeah it was just an absolute nightmare for first year students honestly I feel for them and you, you've been to visit them, haven't you? You, 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 you yeah. checked them out. How are they coping now? Yeah, so when I went to Murano, it was, I think, maybe last month. 
And uh, a lot, uh, some of them were coming out of isolation, but uh, quite a few flats were still in isolation. We were just kind of helping um, some kind of groups, like hand out food boxes, etc. And um, it was just quite strange. Uh, so you obviously knock on the door, and these um, these like apartments are are essentially they're not made for students to live in. They're basically a place for you to crash at the end of the night once you've been studying or partying. Yeah. Um, I think they're actually designed by the same people that have designed some prisons. So they are like essentially <laughs> prison blocks. And it, yeah, it was pretty surreal, like knocking on the doors, you know, going like two meters back and being like, do you want some food? <laughs> and, um, and these like teenagers are just like a bit kind of bewildered about the whole thing, kind of just, you know, and I ask, you know, how are you doing, etc. And they're just like, don't I don't really know. Uh, I don't really know what's going on. I mean, there was some action um, in Glasgow in that um, a rent strike was organised, and there was some uh, kind of compensation, but not really enough. So you know, they got fifty quid to spend on food and a month's back rent, but it wasn't really fair. Tell, tell me how, how how people cope though. I mean, how do you get food if you're stuck? So for the for the first three days, basically, people really had nothing because they were kind of slapped with a kind of you have to stay in here. Yeah. And then for the first three days, they were yeah they didn't really have much access to food because they were kind of told you need to arrange your own slot for you know Tesco deliveries etc. Okay. And yeah, so it was very hard for everyone to find a slot at the same, you know, on the same time. So a lot of people were really struggling the first few days. Um, things got a little bit better after that, but still it was very difficult to have deliveries to your flat, especially if you are COVID-infected flat. So I think it was really quite stressful for some people um, being so far away from home as well and paying ridiculous amounts of rent as well. They've almost doubled in the last six years. Yeah. It was just a, it was just a massive, it was just idiocy really how they'd set this up. Yeah. I suppose one blessing is that many of them don't have to pay fees. I assume that the fees are covered by the Scottish government. Is that the case or no? Well, yeah, but there's a lot of there's a lot of English students and a lot of EU students or or students from elsewhere, and they do have to pay. But also, um, if you consider what student loan is, which is about four hundred and eighty pound a month, and then rent doesn't it is just almost about the same. So it's kind of um, students aren't able to work. So it's a, a total assumption that um, students have families that will give them money and that's just not the case for everyone. How do you think people are coping now, now that they're well into it, as it were? Well, I think people are coping a lot better. I think, um, especially at the start, people weren't very politicised, but they didn't understand that, you know, this isn't just student life. You know, we sh- they should deserve you know a kind of better quality of care Um, I think now that students are allowed to meet um, and there's less restrictions that um, there's some kind of politicising going on and kind of some action hopefully will be taken. Okay, There was a good chance 
I mean, I don't want to scare anyone, but there's a good chance that uh, that we may be heading for another lockdown. Who knows? How confident are you that the arrangements are in place to cope with that, or do you feel that it might result in a reprise of what happened before? Um, to be honest, I'm not confident at all because, as it stands, as soon as you move into university accommodation, that's you part of a household, and you're stuck, so you're not allowed to visit another household. Okay. Um, I think a lot of students will, or are trying to get out of their accommodation, but the problem is that they're, you know, you sign a contract, yeah. and that doesn't kind of relieve you of. Uh, what you have to pay so it's a kind of way up of do I try and escape which is technically not allowed or and and keep on paying or just stay put so it's it's quite a difficult decision for people and there's not really that much focus on it at the moment I mean there is a you know it is kind of like oh students might not be allowed back for Christmas but it's there's not that much of a how do we let students go back for Christmas? Because Christmas can be an isolating time for anyone uh, who's not with their family or, or friends. But if you're, you know, in a new city with people that you don't really know, it's kind of going to be um, worse. Yeah. Maybe there's something that other citizens in various university cities can do. Uh, because, you know, I'm not sure everyone understands the plight that you've just outlined. And, and maybe it needs a bit more publicity. Maybe this will help a little bit for people generally to understand a bit more clearly what, what it's like. Because there tends to be a sort of view around, and I'm sure you've heard it, where it, well, it's all these middle class kids and they've been <laughs> they've been mollycoddled their whole lives, and here they are having to fend a little bit for their own, and here they are complaining like whatever, whatever. They should really sort of count their blessings and all the rest of it. You must have heard that. Um, yeah, absolutely. That is a sentiment that exists, but it, it's it's not applicable to everyone. Of course, there are kids that you know are able to you know have money from their parents, but not everyone has such a stable family. Like a lot of people coming from, especially actually, Glasgow is quite good, and they have a lot of outreach um, for people of less affluent backgrounds and stuff. Yeah. I mean, despite you know, being a, like a very a very well-respected university. But also there's people stuck in places like college lands, like lots of, and then lots of different, you know, kids, you know, from various backgrounds kind of together and they all have, you know, different things going on. So I, I don't know. It's it's basically, I think, you should just assume that, um, that young adults in these situations may have it bad rather than assume the other way around. Say that there's, there's folks watching and listening tonight and they would like to help. Where can they go? Is there a, is there a website or whatever that somebody who wants to help out can use? It's because I'm part of this student population, I know how I can get involved. But I suppose just kind of any kind of publicity on this or empathy or just... Kind of, yeah, just getting people to think a little bit different because there's some really hard situations. I know, I know. And and I suppose there's so many different stories and so many different people affected in so many different ways. It may be difficult, you know, but but, I mean, 
if there's one thing that characterizes Scotland, it's a tremendous kindness and generosity. And I mean, there will be people watching and listening, saying, thinking to themselves, well, I'd like to do something. So maybe afterwards, if, if there's some sort of website or telephone number they can call the volunteer, well, I don't know quite what they might want to do. And I don't want to sort of assume that what people might want to do and what help they might want to give. But, uh, but if you can think of something that people can get in touch to, to volunteer, them, then afterwards let, let us know, because I think that would be good. We've had some questions coming in. Uh, Mary Malloy wants to know, do you think students are taking the restrictions seriously? Um, I think largely, yes. Um, I think this... Uh, kind of blame on students is really, really unfair. Um, although Nicola Sturgeon came out and, you know, said, don't blame the students. At the same time, the university and the Scottish government came out with a joint statement saying that we will, um, you know, we will impose kind of like heavy consequences and stuff as like a warning. And I think that just made people feel very, I don't know, infantilized and um kind of I think most people are are respecting yeah. restrictions but it's in any group children you know adults um of whatever class etc you know obviously there's going to be some people bending the rules and it's just really unfair to put it on students uh, well I would agree with that I mean after all I heard of somebody called Cummings who travelled half the way because <laughs> he couldn't see <laughs> And his boss thought it was perfectly okay. <laughs> and, then, and then what he did, he held a press conference to explain why he thought it was okay and why no one else should be troubled about it. <gasps> okay. Oh, that was, that was so ridiculous. <laughs> it, it could only happen here. I mean, if I tried to make up that and, and told people that as a story, say, a couple of years ago, that nobody would have taken it seriously. I know. <laughs> yeah, they, they would say, I assume he was fired on the spot. No, he wasn't. <laughs> he was getting a warning. No. What happened to him? He went on television. You're kidding. What did his boss say? His boss said it was okay. You're joking. I know. At least the Scottish government has a sense, you know, when people break, break the restrictions to kind of be like, hey, resign, you know. <laughs> but this is, oh, this was just beyond the pale. <laughs> But it is a serious point, though, because when people see senior politicians and, and senior advisors breaking the law, it's then very difficult to progress with a message that says, hey, guys, you all need to behave. Because immediately people think, well, hey, hold on a second. He didn't behave. She didn't behave. You know, and, and they're still being paid out of the public price. You know, so it's, it's a difficult one. But hey, what? We can come back to that. And, if you've got time later, what people really want to know is what happened that night when that picture behind me was taken. Give give us the, the blow by blow because you were sixteen at the time. Yeah, I was. Um, Your sister Sarah was what 20? twenty? Twenty, yeah. 20. So she, she was she was big sister. So yes. there she is, holding one one part of the soul town. There you are on the other side, holding the other part, and you you were surrounded by gentlemen who'd had. I'm not sure what the play expression is. Uh, one or two shares before they approach. Yeah, you. you could say that. So I suppose going well, back. First of all, to go down there. 
Well, obviously it'd been a very sad night for a lot of us. I I stayed up. I was at my parents um, and I stayed up, you know, to watch the boats come out. And I was very, very sad in the morning. I think my mum took the brunt of that because she'd voted no when I was she came and I was like shame. So then uh, my sister called me up and I went to hers and there were a few of us there and we were all kind of consoling each other. Um, and then we we saw on RT that um, there were a few people in George Square that were still kind of, you know, standing for independence. You know, they had their solid tires, but there was a large group of unionists there. So we kind of like, we kind of like picked yourself up and we're like, here, you know, it's not over. Uh, let's go down. Uh, you know, we'd been at Jersey Square the day before and the day before that. And it was really like, it was a brilliant, positive place. So, you know, these like few people that were there, we were like, let's go join them. Um, yeah, so we so when we got there, it, it escalated quite a lot. There were a lot more people in the square, um, particularly unionists, of course. And, you know, kind of, so we went to stand with uh, the supporters of Scottish independence. And then the the police, uh, they basically started removing people with salt tires from the square, I suppose, for our own safety. Um, as, you know, kind of the mob started getting a bit bigger. And then uh, they kind of formed like a kind of police barricade separating um, the independent supporters from the unions, uh, which were much larger and kind of like totally swept, like taking over the square, you know, with their, you know, red hand of Ulster salutes, which obviously were uh, Nazi salutes. And, um, you know, singing songs like No Surrender, um, you know, Rule Britannia, that kind of, you know, rhetoric. So me and my sister, we were just like, we, I suppose we were quite like, we were quite like optimistic and we were quite like, we were very sure of ourselves, like that we are on the right side of history here. And so what we did was we had our, we had our flags um, under, under jumpers and uh, we went through the Queen Street entrance and it uh, came out on the other side and tried <laughs> to blend in with the other with uh, the unionists um, and then we got to a bit in the square and you know we we stood up with our with our flags and um you know we got quite a lot of aggression of course uh, and then we kind of moved a little bit further into the square and then eventually we felt like we would probably be more stable if we were sitting down because, you know, people were trying to crowd us over and stuff. And if we were sitting down, we could be quite solid there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we were very much feeling like this, you know, this is our square too. Like you, you have no right, you know, we're not doing anything wrong at all. We're just showing our solidarity for the future of the independence movement. And uh, so, yeah, we were sitting there and at one point um, a guy, uh, you know, they were spitting at us, throwing stuff at us and all that. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, you know, maybe people were getting to the point of possible violence, 
but uh, luckily it never got to that. It was mainly just verbal abuse, spitting at us and throwing stuff. And we were eventually very much surrounded, like quite heavily by um, by these people who were, you know, drunk and angry and, you know, flying high on whatever mantra they thought um, suited, I don't know, Ulster kind of um, nationalist stuff. And um, yeah, and then uh, uh, at one point, a guy I was holding my own flag, at one point a guy came down and he, he, he grabbed my flag from me. And so I, I kind of ended up, I hold, held on to it and I kind of got dragged across the ground for a bit. My sister, like, fantastically managed to get the flag back off of him. And then I guess at that point, it probably got a, a bit more aggressive, but there were some, there were some uh, people that had managed to get in that were, were either neutral or maybe just kind of there to see what was going on and they were trying to defend us. But we were we were pretty resolute. We were pretty kind of, you know, we're here, you know, this is a, this is a public space. Um, a, you know, we're not going to reply to these, like, angry, swearing people. We're, you know, we'll say, you know, if you want to have a conversation, that's fine. But, you know, what we're doing is we're just... Exercising a right to kind of peaceful so demonstration. Surrounded by these people flaunting their flags, shouting abuse, presumably obscene obscenities as well. Yeah. Drunk, Sexist uh, abuse abusive. as well. Yeah. Just... I mean, people don't need to have too great an imagination to figure out what the heck was going on here. Mm-hmm. And yet you were the one that, you were the ones that got arrested. Yeah. <laughs> so what happened essentially was the police came in and they said, I could tell, uh, you know, they were they were kind of, you know, a bit angry and they were just like, you know, we're going to have to ask you to move. And we were like, sorry, we don't feel like we have to move. You know, we're exercising our rights here, uh, you know, very calmly. And then they came back and said, we're, we're asking you to move again. We're like, I'm, I'm sorry, but we're just not going to. It's, um, you know, we're not doing anything wrong. Um, the people yeah. around us are, are the ones who are being abusive. And then he said, well, we'll, we'll ask you one more time or else uh, we're going to have to arrest you. And we said, you know, if you have to arrest us, you have to arrest us, but it's not you know, it's, we're not doing anything. Um, and they said, okay, so we're going to arrest you. And then, so they took us out the square and, you know, there was a lot of cheers, obviously, for the police. And then we were taken down uh, a side street because there was too much kind of commotion. And what I, what me and my sister found quite annoying at the time with the police was that they didn't just take us home. I mean, they could have just taken us home at that point rather than taking us to um, police station ages away and having us there for the night in separate cells. 
Uh, it just seemed a bit ridiculous, but you know, our spirits were were fairly okay anyway. So you know, we you know we felt kind of solidarity with each other and with the movement, and we didn't feel any kind of shame in what had happened. And it was actually only until I guess maybe at four o'clock in the morning I got woken up from my cell to get my prints done and my mug shot, and um, one of the the people at the uh, one of the the police women there, um, uh, she was like, "Do you know that uh, you're circulating online and stuff?" And we had no idea that you know anyone had taken a photograph of us or anything. We're like, "What?" They're like, "Yeah, yeah, you're all over, you're all over the internet." The one, and we're like, "Well, I was like, my sister is in a different cell." Really? Oh my God! What? We thought, you know, it was just, you know, a kind of private act. Of, I suppose what we were charged with was obstruction of the police, as in not doing what we were told. <laughs> that fancy, fancy way of saying that, um, and um, breach of the peace. All that got we got acquitted of, uh, probably about eight months later or something, if I remember correctly. So but the, yeah, charges, the charges weren't dropped then? They were eventually dropped due to kind of a bit of media pressure. Um, someone started a petition and it got quite a few thousand signatures. And then Arvin Welsh shared it. And then kind of the, someone, you know, kind of asked the procurator fiscal, like, what is going on? Because we weren't sure if we were going to have to go to court or be fined or whatever, and we we're like, you know, it was like, you know, it was a bit stressful in that sense. Oh, but you know, from yeah. sixteen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was like, oh god. <laughs> but uh, we've got a question here. Somebody says, "How did your mum react when she heard about all the spitting and the abuse that?" Well, um, so it was. It was well, so it was my dad that picked us up for the police station the next morning. And <laughs> we came out, you know, with our wee bags, you know, with our shoes and stuff. And he was just like, because both my parents were no voters. So uh, my mum was away in England at the time. And, um, you know, she was pretty, pretty angry about the whole situation until kind of... Well, we got home and and we looked on the internet, and then my dad found it quite funny actually. That just, but uh, no, my mom, my mom, you know, was much more angry at us for disrupting whatever. Um, <laughs> not gonna lie, but uh, yeah, it, it was it was quite strange I and mean, surreal. <laughs> I think I mean we, we've had loads and loads of comments from people. I mean. Uh, Ruthie Dixon says, Scotland will always be proud of you and your sister. The picture is iconic and will always will be, and it will go down in history. Kiss, kiss. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> this, is fan, this is your fan base tuning in now. <laughs> For the first time, they've had a chance to hear you say and explain your side of things. And I have to tell you, it's a, it's a, a marvellous story because I'm, I'm just not sure everyone fully understands the pressure you were under and how just desperately evil the conditions were and the fact that you were arrested and the people who were abusing you <laughs> were allowed to continue, it speaks volumes. The fact that you were able to stay level-headed in that environment 
as a 16-year-old. Yeah. Um, Honestly, you know, it's, it's a tremendous achievement, I, I, I must say. Really thank you. It, it really, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the aftermath is, was pretty intense, particularly as a 16-year-old, because I was in school, obviously, and um, it actually it polarised a lot of a lot of people at school. You know, a lot of the talk was, you know, kind of stupid wee lassie kind of thing. Uh, but then, you know, there were, you know, some people that were like, you know, that was really good. So I, that was quite stressful, yeah. really. And to be honest, same with teachers, um, like, you know, who I'd engaged with a uh, discussion before and then this kind of came out. And um, yeah, it, it, that was that was much more stressful than the kind of because uh, I had my sister with me who you know is you know my uh, complete inspiration for lots of things you know uh, despite you know her flaws. <laughs> um, we you know we were together and we knew what we were doing was perfectly right. But yeah, the aftermath, um, kind of not being used to any kind of, I know it was kind of like, you know, small media attention, but, you know, with, within the independence movement, it was, yeah. you know, fairly kind of big for a little bit. So that was, that was incredibly stressful. And also being interviewed by the police as well afterwards um, and yeah. kind of not knowing what was going on, that was probably the worst aspect of it. I mean, obviously, you you must you obviously you must. It was a bit scary at the time. I imagine. I mean, growing men shouting abuse and spitting at you. I mean, as a sixty-year-old, that's just frankly just beyond the pale. So um, we've had a question. People asking, or somebody's asking. Sorry, uh, how do you, do you feel? What's how do you feel about unionists now? Uh, I mean, now you've had a chance to these years after the event. What's your sense of it now? I think, I mean, there is unionists and then there is British nationalist kind of bigots. And so I I think, you know, you know, some people are unionists for, you know, their own reasons, but some people are blindly unionists and, you know, I I, I find it difficult to engage in discussion with people that are, you know, even members of my own extended family are, you know, it's it's not a blind hatred for unions at all. There is definitely a middle ground there. And, and you know, there's plenty of people I get along with that don't support Scottish independence. Conservative voters, however, <laughs> are a little bit harder to, <laughs> to get along with. Um, <laughs> That's your social activism coming through again. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, there is a, a serious point here, and several people have raised it, Ruth Hanratty being one. She says, what was that about you that's so frightened? The unionists. I think it was a kind of refusal to be intimidated as much as they were attempting to. And um, okay. I don't know, maybe 
you read into it, maybe that's a little bit symbolic of maybe the movement that they're up against. But yeah, I think because we were, you know, young women against so many people and, you know, whatever, we were kind of maybe feeling or if we'd objectively looked at the, the situation, it had been a different kind of situation um, that wasn't so maybe politically charged or whatever. It would have been extremely terrifying but because we had that kind of faith behind us it it I think that probably maybe made people feel a little bit unsettled I don't know maybe if that's just conjecture I'm not sure <laughs> well it's, it, I, I can see that psychologically it's disconcerting to be confronted by a symbol of what you think you've just beaten that that's that's maybe part of it you know because you think you've won and all of a sudden here seems to be some flagrant evidence that that might not be the case. In other words, the deal might not be sealed. And, yeah. uh, and that's lifting for some people, particularly when a few few beers and can't really think terribly straight. Uh, or you couldn't think straight from the very beginning, I don't know. But I, I could see psychologically, I mean, I, I'm doing some cod psychology now, which is always to be avoided. I, I, and I think this quite, uh, I want to ask you a question in a second about why you think uh, so many young people are now in favour of independence. I mean, the, the figures are frankly they're, they're extraordinary. Uh, when you look at the, the opinion polls, when you look at people under 20 and perhaps even under 25, I mean, you're talking in the 70s, sometimes the high 70s, support for independence. So the question here, though, from Yes of Bearsden and Mulgai, and the questioner is asking, why do you believe the SNP student and youth groups isolate themselves away from the long-established Scotland-wide SNP branch participation so much, only to be rarely seen to help when well-publicised election and canvassing events occur. Branches are screaming out for participation of our future generation, but they seem content to do their own thing. What, what do you, how would you respond to that? Well, as someone that is not an SNP member and never has been, that is maybe slightly difficult for me to say. And I think I think generally, um, although a lot of people are a lot like young people are in gen generally in support for Scottish independence, often isn't SNP affiliated. Um, I'm certainly not. I, I'm a, I'm a socialist myself, but I suppose people will. I think also there's a feeling of when you join a, a major political party or the SNP has become, um, it, there's a little bit of intimidation. Whereas when you're with your peers or when you're within a non-hierarchical group, you maybe feel more comfortable in voicing your opinions and, you know, rather than ones that are already established. Uh, I hope that helps answer your question. Anyway. Well, I, th I thought you were going to say it's up to the SNP to make themselves uh, amenable to, to young people. Uh, I don't think it has to be, you know, necessarily coming from one direction. But anyway, I, I, th I think, I think, thank you, you answered that, I thought, exceptionally well. Uh, Kim Stells is asking, well done, Sophie. I'm desperate to know how your folks stand six years on. <laughs> well, um, very annoyingly, um, so with the whole the vow kind of debacle, right? Um, like, what was it? I think maybe three days after when after the referendum and it was all English votes for English laws, 
My dad's come round as well, but it has generally been because, you know, just, you know, absolute no faith in, in the Tories. But then again, my parents have started to go towards, much to my annoyance, have gone towards uh, Keir Starmer. Um, and it's quite hard having to move back in with my parents over COVID to, to skint to, you know, <laughs> not. <laughs> it's quite hard to uh, see things through a completely different lens from my parents. But on specifically independence, I feel that they would vote for independence now. Uh, what good, they would, yeah, I mean, yeah, what they would uh, vote for after independence, I'm not sure. Well, who, who knows? I mean, who knows what's on offer after independence? Yeah. I mean, nobody knows. Uh, the SNP, as far as I can gather, haven't produced a constitution for uh, independent Scotland, so we don't know what form of state might occur. Your view would be, I assume, unless I'm very much mistaken, you prefer a socialist state. Absolutely. Uh, and therefore, I, I suspect maybe that's why you're not terribly enamoured of Keir Starmer. <laughs> you could say that, yeah. <laughs> um, funnily enough, uh, one of one of my friends uh, who had been a long-standing Labour supporter, um, when you when you leave a party, especially, you know, Labour, uh, they ask for a reason why, and you know, he was like Keir Starmer and um, the Rebecca, uh, what's her name, that got expelled from well. Had to resign, I suppose. Oh, yeah. yeah, from the party. Uh, got a reply from his his constituent MP said, "You know, I I feel like um, I get a resignation every time Keir Starmer opens in his mouth, and in fact, I do." <laughs> it was just quite a. I don't know. It's it's sad, but you know, there's no opposition anymore. But uh, people that feel that way, and I think that were the Scottish people that were in favour of Jeremy Corbyn now feel that since there is no Jeremy Corbyn, there is no chance of kind of good things com- coming out of the UK. And, and, and I suppose a positive way that has made them come more favourably to independence. So, so going back to the opinion polls, which seem to indicate there's a very large percentage of young people, however you define young, like I say under 20 or 25, uh, who are, you know, 70-odd percent, are saying uh, they, they would be in favour of independence. What do you think the main drive has been that, that, that you haven't already covered? I mean, is it, is it, is it a feeling of uh, the UK state has proved itself to be incompetent? Or is it the quality of the leadership? Or is it the fact that being young, people want to see significant change, not just incremental change, but significant change to address the issues as they perceive them that haven't been addressed to date? Or is it a combination of all of these things and more? What would you say? Well, I'd say that, um, of course, it's a combination of things. But um, I think with the kind of... Like I think possibly before 
2014 or 2016, people kind of had the feeling it's always going to be the status quo. But then Brexit happened and then, you know, the US elections, people feel like, oh, I can actually, there is, a, you know, there is scope to break out of this. And people that were previously just kind of, you know, fed up, but couldn't be, you know, felt like there was no point in them making a stance, feel that maybe there, there is, you know, we can actually make a stance now and that, you know, Brexit happened, why can't Scottish independence happen? Yeah. I've got a question here, which is slightly different. <laughs> it's uh, Melanie McCain is asking, what do you think about Kevin Gore's song about you and your sister? Have you heard it? Yeah, I have. Uh, it was really, really lovely. Like, felt so like humbled by that song. It was so, so kind of. I mean, when I was living in Edinburgh, he he used to play, he used to play downstairs at this kind of uh, folk music thing. And you know, uh, me and my sister, one of the most terrifying moments of our life, we spoke at Hope River Fear rally with uh, Tommy Sheridan and, you know, he was backstage and we got talking and stuff. And honestly, the the song is just like so lovely. I feel, I feel undeserving to have that song. It was just, it was amazing uh, to be honoured in that way. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about uh, being a student because you're studying what, uh, politics and history? Yeah. I am. Um, you're you're now in your third year. Uh, yeah. How, how how many years does a course entail? Is it four years or four years? Yeah. So, so, so you're, are you heading towards your final year now? Well, after uh, this year, then I'll be <laughs> heading towards my final year. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how, how do you feel about it? Obviously, it's an adjustment doing everything online, but I think everything absolutely needs to be online because. You know, not just student safety, but staff safety um, really needs to be respected during this time. Um, and, you know, my gripes with the university are definitely not towards the staff, it's towards the kind of money-grabbing um, management. <laughs> um, but, yeah, um, yeah, no, it's, it's an adjustment. And, I mean, unfortunately, there's problems with some students not being able to, you know have proper internet connection and that is again like a, an issue and shouldn't hold but for myself you know it kind of it is what it is and to be honest I the staff are doing as as much as they can to kind of help us through and for a lot of them you know so, uh, quite a lot of them are maybe a little bit technically technologically challenged so <laughs> Um, so they're really trying to like kind of educate themselves and make me as easy as possible. But um, I'm I, I'm lucky. I'm you know humanities and social science, so it's not like I have kind of physical labs that I can't attend. So yeah, yeah I, I did a bachelor's degree in science, and there's no way I could have done that satisfactorily on on, on Zoom. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> It just wasn't going to happen. I've done no. some of it, I guess, but not, not, all it, not all of it by any means. I'm going to ask you a leading question now. Uh, because you, you, sound, you sound like uh, you've, you've really studied, you've actually been involved in a political setup 
uh, you've seen the best and the worst of people. Ever consider a career in politics? Um, I've been asked that a few times, and the kind of simple answer is no. If you if you mean becoming a kind of politician or etc., then absolutely not. What I would like to do, I mean, I made this decision quite a few years ago. I would really, really like to, for one of a better phrase, kick um, either the government and if, you know, we are still part of the UK, the Home Office, the arse as hard as I can, I understand. <laughs> so I, I maybe been a part of a pressure group or, or some way I've been able to do that. And I don't feel that I'm a leader, but I, I feel that I, I can help put pressure on certain things to, uh, for the better why, good anyway. Why, why, do, why do you feel you're not a leader? Um... I don't know. It's just, it's never kind of felt my place. My my sister, she could, she could lead however she wanted. I think I, I get, I'm very much up in my head. So I, uh, I feel like I could also never be affiliated with a political party um, and, you know, lose my own kind of values and I think that's often what happens when you go into politics not always but it's just it's not for me what I'd like to do is is make a difference in helping organizations that you know I'm already kind of a part of um, and you know I'm much better at debating one-on-one or debating what on you know three rather than debating to the world I think <laughs> well you know something you know, it's a reasonable question to ask because people are looking at this picture and that looks a lot like leadership, I have to say. <laughs> that looks think, a lot like leadership. You I know, think... What, what is leadership? Leadership surely is having the courage of your convictions and the cojones, if I can use that term, uh, to, to step up to the plate, mixing all my metaphors as gracefully now, uh, stepping up to the plate and saying, this is what I believe in. This is what I stand for. This is what's important. And I respect you might feel differently to other people, but I want to explain this to you. That, to a large extent, that's, what lead, that's where leadership stems from. I mean, if you, 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 you study history, you've looked at people like, I assume, like Martin Luther King. You've looked at people from the American Revolution. It, it, many of them, frankly, were not at all disposed to standing up in front of people and declaiming. They just felt that when they looked around, <laughs> there wasn't anyone else doing what needed to be done. And, and so they said, okay, I'm going to screw my courage to the max and I'm going to step up there and I'm going to say my pieces because it's important that these pieces are said. That's, Absolutely. That's I mean. And um, I, 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 you know, if there's some, you know, and there's many things that I, I believe in, and like full heartedly that you know I am I want to stand up and project. Um, however, I think what comes to mind when you see a politician would be like a member of parliament or you know a, a, an MSP, and that I wouldn't be able to do. Um, I find that uh, so you know I'm myself. I'm a member of. Um, uh, 
revolutionary socialist um, direct action. I think especially now when, you know, you've got Labour against the kind of right. Uh, so, you well, you've got right Labour against right Tories. It's uh, basically uh, grassroots and um, direct action is, is basically our our way of doing so and you know all under one banner etc is fantastic and organizing people like that and you know i i always want to be extremely involved in these things but in terms of kind of leading i don't know maybe a, a party or or something like that or being part of a party into a system that i don't uh, believe in okay okay it's not for me <laughs> Uh, apart from Tommy Sheridan, what other politicians do you admire? Obviously, I, I even though I'm not uh, fully behind SNP, Mary Black was just fantastic when uh, when she got elected. I, I just thought she was brilliant, brilliant young woman um, speaking her mind and having you know she was just fantastic. I. Have you met with her? No, no, that, that sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. You, you should meet with her, I guess. You should give her a call and say, I'd like to meet up with you. Yeah. Think We've asked her on the show, by the way, but we just can't find a time. Uh, yeah. We're still looking. We'd still like to have her as a guest. Yeah. No, and then, then you can get a question to her. <laughs> yeah, that would be fantastic. <laughs> um, well, also, Black and Tommy. Uh, who else do you admire? Patrick Harvey. I think that he, you know, I met him once as well. Um, yeah. I, I used to be a, a member of um, the Green Party and Ross Greer. He's like a, you know, young, uh, a very young person when he was elected. Uh, I spoke to him before as well. You know, Jeremy Corbyn is one of those people that, you know, I, I absolutely respect in lots of ways, but, you know, and other things, you know, he kind of was just the mark, but I feel like he he what he did was kind of stand up for you know the good. Um, unfortunately, that didn't extend to Scottish independence, but you know as a as a person, I think for good. Um, uh, I suppose not a politician, but someone that I do really admire as, as a kind of political commentator and academic is Noam Chomsky. I think he's uh, some of his commentary on what's going on in the world is absolutely fantastic. So yeah, I suppose that's that's my kind of icons really. <laughs> so picture yourself for a second. It's not today. It's not COVID. It's two years from now. What picture do you see of Scotland at that point, two years from now? Mm. Assuming COVID is over and done with. Well, I see, I suppose, I'm not going to lie, I think that the SNP are going to wait a little bit. And I think that in about two years' time, uh, the real independence campaign will be either kicking off or or finishing. Um and so I don't see that we'll have smoothed everything out by then. And do you know what? It's going to be once 
we do become independent, which I think is inevitable. I think there's going to be a period of um, kind of economical unrest and, and so on. But I think if we look forward maybe 10 years, I think we'll see the beginning of like a blossoming new uh, independent nation that uh, has so much potential and has tackled a lot of the social injustices that uh, have been put upon us by Westminster largely. So It's interesting you say that because uh, there's a lot of research into you know, nations that become independent and some states, some countries fail. They are failed states. They become independent and that's it. Everything goes to hell. Others do exceptionally well. And that also applies to states within states. You know, if you compare, for example, uh, Detroit with Seattle, you know, they, they both came from the same place. They lost their industries. In the case of Detroit, it was a car industry. In the case of Seattle, it was, a, it was a, the, the aircraft industry. But Seattle completely transformed itself. And when the researchers went looking to see why Detroit, Seattle didn't end up like Detroit, you know what the answer was? What? The people? <laughs> education. Yeah, and we've got fantastic education. Exactly. And also we have a very much, in general, like a spirit of inclusion and progression in Scotland. And I think that will certainly help us become a really, really fantastic well-functioning nation. Uh, we've got a complete spirit of kindness and, you know, hope for the future. And I think that's what will kind of, like, you know, eventually carry us to, like, a really fantastic working nation. Yeah. One thing that I ask most guests, because it's it's still a, a, a source of some confusion, if you look around the independence movement across Europe, and you studied history and you studied politics, you know how very rare it is for there to be no right-wing independence movement in a country. I mean, generally speaking, if you look at most, you—I assume you—you'll agree. Uh, if not, tell me. Uh, if you look at most countries that are striving towards independence, there's usually a right-wing independence party. There may well be some left-wing parties. In Scotland, that's not the case. There isn't even a centre-right party in favour of independence. Every single party is left-wing in Scotland. Every single one. Why do you think that is? Um, I think because I think the the main driving force for Scottish independence is not about uh, you know we are wealthy and we want to keep hold of our wealth. It's more of a we want a fair society and we are being held back from that. You know we're being subjugated and and being told that, you know, we can't have that and we can't make the decisions that we want to make so that, you know, people can live, you know, more more positive lives. Um, so, yeah, I think that's about the crux of it. You would expect the right wing to, to say, you know, just from the point of view of self-preservation, to say we'd like a presence in independent Scotland. If you leave it till independence, then... It's going to be just an almighty scramble, and the whole the the the, the likely administration in an independent Scotland certainly initially would almost certainly be uh, with left wing. There's no question about that, because there's no right wing presence to speak of. Uh, just uh, anyway, no, no doubt we can we can talk about that in, in greater greater length. Is it is it 
we were just about to close off now. I, I did tell you it would go fast, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, it did, surprisingly. <laughs> just like that. Um, you know, we're almost through. We've just got a couple of minutes. Is there any message that you would like to give all the folks in the audience watching and listening? Um, I just say keep up the faith. I mean, I know it was a horrible time trying for all of us, but some more than most. And, you know, if we strive towards like an independent Scotland, maybe we won't have such harsh inequalities as we do just now. And even better, have a, a sort of utopia where the Tories don't have such a high presence and we're able to do what we like for um, a fair uh, society. Well, right now they wouldn't have any presence because they're not right now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, see, seriously, a big thank you to you, Sophie. And, oh, my uh, absolute pleasure. Uh, it's, it's, been, it's been great and I've, I've really enjoyed it. And, I, and very importantly, please support Indie Live. And if you like the TNT show, let us know. We always like to hear from you. And thanks again for joining us and a very good night to all of you. And remember, it's been a great day for British democracy. Good night, all. Mm-hmm.